our series, we explore sleep and how it impacts those with ADHD. Episode 7 I find out from Dr. Lou Mycroft how her ADHD has been supported by her own self-strategies, the most prominent being her pursuit for joy. seen that you've got your PhD from Huddersfield University. Uh-huh. You're a facilitator. Yeah. A coach. Yeah. A change maker. Yeah. A writer. How yeah. on earth do you yeah. fit all of that in? Well, that's the ADHD brain, actually, isn't it? So it is about self-strategies for balance and um, and picking the golden thread that runs through them all. So all the work that I do, as far as I can, is a practice of my ethics, is a mm. practice of, in particular, joy. That sounds really, you know, uh, fuzzy, warm and fuzzy. But the fact is, that's how I decide what work I want to do. What, what's that path that it's going to take me on? So, so so, how would you describe what you do? If if, you, if I was to give you, you know, a line that says, Lou Mycroft, this is what she does. What, what, how would you describe yourself? I'd say that I create spaces where people can become change makers. Yeah. where people can step into their own power. Oh, okay. Um, I work a lot in education, in further education, because that was one of my backgrounds. And uh, people have got so used to their place in the hierarchy, they don't think they can do anything to change things, mm. but we all can. So that's personal change, doing the work on yourself. But it's also the work. And when I say the work, I mean social purpose, social justice, equality, whatever it is, but following those values. Through. And what, what's important for you? Presumably. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What's important for me is to just find joyful practice amongst the chaos in the world. The myriad to be of honest. chaos. Oh, out there. absolutely. We need it more than ever because that's where hope comes from. So if I can create spaces on and offline where people can learn to step into their own joy, recognizing it as a practice that just channels those frustrations and sorrows and that anger into doing something affirmative that's going to bring mm. about some change. Yeah. Now, when I look at the stuff you do, that's a. I thought I was busy, and I thought I had a lot of strings to my bow. But you do a lot. Of, I mean, do you do you sort of compartmentalize your work, or do you have more of a sort of a fluid strategy and dip in and out of stuff? How, how do you sort of manage your your day to day work? So it is it is pretty fluid. Um, where I hold the boundaries is around my rest time, and and I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about that. And that's been hard won. I haven't always done that. Absolute classic ADHD workaholic for a long time and that was quite hard to let go of even when I became a freelancer so we're going back seven years now so yeah things fluidly move from one to the other I choose not to recognize structures and hierarchies if I can get away with it so I work in a way with people that they um, are able to step outside their own sort of mind controls if that makes sense um, and the work just presents itself as part of a landscape so I'm starting a great piece of work tomorrow at a wonderful place called Furcroft College in Birmingham that used to be George Cadbury's house so that Quaker tradition of adult education it's around green skills training change makers that will feed into every aspect of my work when I do my broadcasts or when I write something or when I go on you know LinkedIn or social media I, I try and filter it all across 
and, and you said green skills. Mm. What are they? Mm. Well, I, I'm thinking trees and hedges and is for it sure. natural type skills. Yeah, being sort of nature centric in thinking and design as well. Wind farms, making sure those wind farms don't kill the marine life around them. I don't know, hybrid cars, it is all of that, but it's also the way in which we lead. So it is having um, skills of storytelling and artistry. It's about being able to um, diplomatically tell stories. It's about having an approach to leadership, which is about looking at the whole system and ecosystems. Um, It's about working in ways which are less hierarchical and where we bring to get people together around skills rather than what it says on the job description. So it really is about living and working in a whole different way. And organisations are starting, some organisations are starting to think differently about systems and culture change, starting to recognise that actually the people at the top aren't always the people who can lead change. What we need to do is find change makers in organisations and support them to move things on with momentum. So I say green skills and I think mushrooms and trees too, but it's a much bigger picture than that. <laughs> yeah, no. So so I think you alluded to the fact that you're diagnosed as having ADHD as well. What, what, what was that journey like for you? It was a self-diagnosis oh, okay. unapologetically. So we're going back maybe 25 years when I um, worked... You at, must have been very young then. I was, yeah, <laughs> barely out of nappies. <laughs> but I was teaching at Northern College in Barnsley, which is an adult residential college with a social purpose um, mission. And so the people I, would te- I was teaching were community workers and youth workers and people going out into the community. And we had to, they had to do like a little teach. And this woman, and I still remember her name, did her 15 minute teach about ADHD, what it was, you know, how it expressed itself. And I could still see the room, I could see what I was wearing, I could see her. And I just sat there with tears sliding down my face because mm. I thought, oh my God, you know. This is me. This is why I seem to go mad at 17. This is why all these things happen. And, you know, I've got good intentions, but things get out of control. So I went to um, the appropriate person in the organisation and I asked for a diagnosis and they laughed at me. Wow. Wow. So they, why, they clearly weren't interested or supporting you in that? That exploration? They just didn't believe it was possible. I was bright, I was capable, you know, Mm. I I did well at my job, I raised my son. Mm. People with ADHD somewhere in the psyche are not that. Mm. And I never sought a diagnosis since. Mm. I just put the pieces together myself, did my research, became to came to identify, I think, and 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 own it, stop shaming and blaming Mm. myself for things not that I don't have responsibility but you know for things in the past ways I behaved that seemed out of my control it made a lot of sense um it's still been quite a journey to develop strategies since then but that moment of self-recognition just beautiful heartbreaking really but it was more positive than not mm. I, I can feel the emotion coming off you as, as you're talking um so it's, just, it's very powerful for you to share that and i think a lot of people 
listening perhaps might be in that journey themselves, mightn't they? They might be thinking, and I'm also kind of on that journey. I've been speaking to lots of people about ADHD and I listen to them talk and I think, wow, that that sounds like me a little bit. And it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? It's then what do people do at that point? Do they try and get a diagnosis? I mean, what would you recommend people do at that state? I don't think I've got recommendation necessarily except to... Do a bit of research into neurodiversity. My belief is that actually what's happening here is that we're living in a world which is designed by neurotypical people. If we don't fit in, it's because it isn't designed for us. It doesn't mean we are deficit in any way, but we're going to feel deficit and we're going to act deficit and we're going to be treated deficit because we don't Mm. fit in these boxes. I am not recommending, but I am saying that I found it powerful to do that work and then make a very powerful decision for me about whether to seek a diagnosis or not. I decided not to because I felt that I was doing okay on my own with it, not on my own because there's a whole community of people, but others may make a different decision. Mm. And, and it sounds like a lot of your work has now come from that sort of exploring strategies for yourself to cope with it. For sure. And I don't know if I even realised that at first, Mark, but, you know, my frustration within the mm. organisation and a desire to break out of that and working, used to be called portfolio working. That's a bit boring, isn't it? I like <laughs> to think of it as working rhizomatically like a plant or, you know, like mushrooms yeah, or yeah. something. I love to think of it mm. in that way. And that was a positive decision. The ethics had to guide it. Otherwise, I could be off, you know, all over the place. Freedom needs boundaries. And that's what I've found more than anything with ADHD. But it's the ADHD energy, I think, Mm. which enables me to work in that way. It wasn't an easy decision financially. Single parent, working class background, no savings or anything like that when I, you know, I had to make the leap. Um, But it's paid off for me in, I'm never bored there's always something creative to do. I seem to be able to balance quite well. Like I've always loved really boring patient admin jobs. And that's the ADHD wiring as well, isn't it? Sometimes to have that hyper focus on something that you're probably not really thinking about, but stuff's happening in the back of your head fuels me to go and stand in front of 200 people or, you know, do some really intensive work. With, with others. Um, so it, it suits me, but I have had to have some structure. And one of my structures is a set of processes called the thinking environment, which is a, a disciplined, very disciplined framework for facilitation, shall mm-hmm, we say. Mm-hmm. I feel safe in that because it's got rules. It's mm. like I feel really safe in Ikea because I can really only go one way around. <laughs> yes, you know? I know. What you, you haven't got to make your own mind up, have you? Absolutely. Yeah, and within that, the paradox of it is that freedom needs boundaries. So these are the sort of ways in which I've, I've begun to think about strategies mm. as putting some framework in place that enables me to do whatever I want to do healthily. Mm. And, and you talk about the fact that you sort of struggled to fit into typical sort of working environment and that you made that leap out out of that world. Do do you think a lot of people probably find themselves in that place where they're really struggling, but they don't realise why they're struggling? Yeah, I think so. You know, I was that 
like a bit of a signal earlier on in my career. Uh, honestly, if I say to you, Mark, that the, it wasn't that I had an awful mm. job. I mean, I've done some <laughs> right jobs, but it wasn't that. It was just that sometimes I could not bear to make myself mm. go to work. Wow. And then, and, and then, but you imagine the sort of guilt and self-shame and then, you know, taking a week off because she'd get a doctor's note because she knew they might not believe you if you only took two. Honestly, I don't want to go back there, honestly. No, no. But then being late despite getting up on time, you know, that whole mm. thing. Um, and yet, interestingly now, when I turn up, if somebody books me for something, I have to turn up. Nobody can sub for me. It's not like that. If people want me, they want me. And I, I turn up, I turn up on time. I seem to, well, I turn up a day early, like <laughs> I did yesterday. You did, you know, I saw on social media, you, you arrived a day early for this interview, didn't you? Yeah, ironic, really, isn't it? <laughs> I said that to my son in a, a text. I said, oh, ironic, eye roll, and he just put, iconic. So I'll oh, take that. Take that. Why not? <laughs> now, one of the things you talk about on social media, I want to sort of talk about your relationship with sleep a little bit as well. Because yeah, yeah. You talk about radical rest, yeah. don't you, quite a lot. Just tell me a little bit about that. So radical rest is a concept, um, comes from the work of a woman called Tricia Hersey, um, a black woman in America who, uh, she calls herself the nap bishop and she runs the nap ministry. Mm -hmm. And she has connected the need for rest with a resistance to capitalism, resistance to the grind, mm. and with her ancestors who were enslaved humans who were not allowed to rest and in some cases worked until they died. I mean, we know this. And she makes that connection between rest and political resistance. Wow. And that was a huge moment for me. So I'd come out of the job job. I had taken the patterns of workaholism into my freelance work, not driven by money, because sometimes there'd be no money in the bank and I was doing this, this and this for nothing, you know. I was sleeping better and that's, you know, a story we'll come on to, but I still wasn't resting. I was working or I might be partying and then I was sleeping. There was no rest. And then a couple of years ago, um, I came across Trisha's work on Instagram she was just publishing a book and I made that connection and I thought, actually, I'm just part of the hamster wheel here. I'm just part of the grind. You know, I think I'm this, you know, warrior person and actually I'm just fulfilling capitalism like everybody else. And if I could start resting and luckily a colleague, we were doing a piece of work together and we were exploring this and we've supported one another through this. And it's napping and it's switching off and it is stopping when I say I will stop. It's daydreaming mm. because how can we imagine a better future? We've put together an online course around radical rest. We talk about it in our work. It's about taking responsibility in education. People work themselves to the bone because they care, because they want to make a difference, because it's for the students, it's for the kids, but we're colluding. And so it helps to take back that power. And that is what's made it finally feels like the last bit of the jigsaw. Because now I'm doing the work. It's not seeming to take as long. Mm. It is still as good 
because I'm resting. And there's, um, I don't know if you've come across the organisational psychologist, Adam Grant, he tells a story about how he's in like a, you know, sort of brainstorming team day. And it's an, he's gone into the evening and he says, I'm going to bed now. And he goes to bed. And when he gets up in the morning, people are disappointed with him. I thought you cared about this work, somebody says. And he says, I care too much mm. to do it when I'm tired, mm. to do it when my brain's not working. And I think that wow. penny has finally dropped for me. But I'm not sure if it would have dropped into place if I hadn't nailed the sleep stuff. So so radical rest is about making sure, ultimately, it's about making sure you take time out. Yeah. Which is difficult to do, isn't it? Yeah. When there are so many pressures so many calls on all of our time. It's really difficult to do that. So as far as the, the sleep aspect is concerned, what, what kind of strategies have you developed? Mm. Because you know, it's great to take those rests and have half an hour nap in the afternoon if you need to, but we still need more sleep, don't we, than, than just take time out. So how, what sort of strategies have you developed uh, to cope with that? Well, the sleep, sleep strategies came first before the rest strategies. And I would say that... It was the connecting the rest with the resistance that really made that difference for me. In terms of sleep, it's always been a bit elusive. I am not typical in that, um, you know, if I was to Google ADHD and sleep, what I'd read is that ADHD people are night owls. I've never been a night owl. I've always been an early bird. And that has sometimes been a, been a ridiculously early bird. Getting up at 4am to start oh, wow. work before my son got up, before I went into work. And it's been a sort of not... And then obviously being exhausted in the evening and only getting a few hours sleep if I get to sleep at all. And for a long time, and it took me a, a long time to recognise, I was self-medicating with alcohol. Mm. That was how I got to sleep. Now, it wouldn't keep me asleep, but it would get me off to sleep. And it was, you know, the classic mum's bottle of wine, couple of glasses, sometimes the whole bottle... I'd try really hard to make it not every night, but it might be five nights a week. I didn't see it as, I suppose I worried about it a bit every now and then I pulled back, but actually I was reliant. I, I wouldn't say I was an alcoholic. I still really like a drink. I've not had any treatment program, but there was just a point at which I thought, actually, it's really nice going to bed sober. Mm. It's actually really nice. And that was the start of my sleep strategy, really, because I've read stuff about sleep hygiene. But if you're half cut, you're not <laughs> going to do those things or they're not going to do you any good. So changing my sheets every couple of days. So I'd always got, you know, nice that sheets. nice clean sheets. Oh, that wonderful experience, yeah. isn't it? That was just, that is really worth the effort. Um just slowing down a bit in an evening, obviously going to bed sober, but not going to bed too full either. Not going to bed when I've had a dance round, you know, just just doing that chill out stuff, getting my pyjamas on at some point really helps to, um, like lavender really works for me. Mm. It doesn't work for everybody. Some people can't stand the smell. But say I go up to the loo a bit before bedtime, I'll just spray a bit of lavender around so that when I go into the room, it's sort of nice and, and settled down. I can't be bothered to get in the bath before bed because if I'm really tired, I don't want to hoist myself out. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> too much effort, isn't oh, it? It's too much, running a bath, good grief. It's too much yeah. effort. <laughs> and then um, I know there's a lot 
of recommendation around um, not using screens in bed, mm. but actually I always have my phone. I don't have a telly. I do just sleep in my bedroom. But my phone is for just soothing me when I wake up in the night. And if I wake, and I wake every single night still, I get back to sleep by listening to rain on a caravan mm. roof on on YouTube or sometimes snow. No, there's a brilliant, I think it's Russian YouTube video. It's called <laughs> All Aboard, It Is Sleepy Time. And it's oh, a train, wonderful. you know, going through the snow. That really works mm. for me. So I want my phone by my side. So I, I can't be, when I was younger, I couldn't bear to be Board, Mark. So I would take a pack of cards with me everywhere so I could play patience. Mm. And now I'm a little bit the same. If I think I can't get to sleep, I start to panic. So those sounds really help, but they can be so addictive. So mm. in the summer, <laughs> when it was really hot, I had a fan and the sound of the fan would get me off to sleep. Mm. And then I broke the fan and I struggled to sleep for about three nights because that sound... It's that of, sound, isn't it? It's like yeah, white noise, isn't it? Yeah. When a fan's running. Totally. But the specific noise is quite mm. addictive, so I mix them all up. Um, I love to wake up when it gets light. I love to go to bed when it gets dark. So that works for me. And there must be something around, you know, melatonin and light. Mm. And um, But people will have different strategies. Absolutely. And I think what, what I've t taken from what you've said so far is that there's all sorts of information yeah. in the ether, isn't there, to pick up on around how to deal with sleep, how to deal with ADHD, but we're all different. Yeah. And it sounds like that, you know, the stuff that you see, the, the typical things, no screen time before bed, don't take your phone to bed with you. Sometimes, for some people, actually that helps. Yeah. So it's really important to explore that to understand what's right for you and what works for you, isn't it? One thing I'd, I'd like to explore, because people think about ADHD, and certainly when I used to think about ADHD, I would think about noisy brains and constantly think about lots of other things. How, how can people help to try and, quieting that down because that's the difficult thing isn't it I think is that that sort of noise the, the voice in your head constantly whirring away and, and talking to you how can you quieten that and sort of calm the brain when you you know when you're getting yourself ready for bed it is like 25 televisions definitely all at the same all switched on at the same time I think it's harder when you're getting ready for bed than it is sometimes during the day because a walk or any sort of physical exercise will absolutely do it for me just to quieten the, the noise down. But I can't do that before I go to bed because in a sense it all also wakes me up again. Yoga sometimes works, so um, you can just go online and find, you know, a five-minute sleep yoga or a 15-minute sleep yoga that you can literally do in bed. That sort of helps a bit, but only if you're in a yoga space anyway. There's definitely something for me about... Um, I listen to audiobooks a lot, mm. and there's something for me about other people's thoughts, i.e. the writing or the podcast stops me thinking it, it's quite passive in a way I struggle a lot with time blindness and and 20 minutes can pass and I couldn't tell you what it's said on that podcast necessarily but I know that my own brain is quiet so sometimes to, to switch off the noises listening to a podcast as long as it's just a little bit boring not too exciting. Not this one. I'm absolutely not of recommending not you one. go off to sleep in this with this podcast. But that that helps 
making the voices be somewhere else, if mm, that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and and, and does that work for you? I mean, do, do, mm. do you find you tend to get overly focused then on the bedtime activities? Or do you find that you just use them as as and when you need to? Yeah, no, I just fall asleep. It's like a, it's like my last line of defence, really. I've tried, you know, I've done the lavender, I've changed the sheets, I've, um, I've, I've tried the white noise. Can't always get off to sleep first of all with the white noise. And my last line of defence is okay. I'll put on that war and peace or whatever my boring audio book is. It needs to be a bit more engaging than that. Actually. <laughs> um, and I'll drift off to sleep. And, Absolutely. And your sleep typically, how would you rate your sleep? Good? Bad? Yeah, no, my sleep is not bad these days. Um, I accept I will always wake up two or three times. I try not to worry about that. I do try, I don't always go to bed at the same time because that would be very dull, actually, because sometimes I, I can go to bed really early. You know, if I've been doing a big event, the adrenaline is Oh, you so, can't sleep after it. Ah, yeah. And I, and to be able to, it used to be bottle of wine or migraine, mm. yeah, after a big event like that. So I do have to stay up. It still might be bottle of wine sometimes. I do have to stay up, but I try and get up at the same time. So I mm. try and get up between six and seven. Sometimes it is still earlier, rarely later, but that seems to get me in a bit of a rhythm. And I would say of those, say I, say I went to bed at 10 and got up at six, eight hours, I would say I probably had six hours sleep in mm. that. And that's all right, you know. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's, that's the right. thing. Again, it's down to what's right for you yeah. as a person, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and it's understanding how how you respond to those things. And it's interesting you talk about getting up at the same time every day. Do you, do you consider that more important than going to bed at the yeah, same time? definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And it's harder in the winter, of course. Like in the summer, it's really easy to get up at six when it's light. But yes, I can manage with some, you know, changes in going to bedtime. I never feel... Well, I rarely feel that I'm sleep deprived these days. Mm. I, I certainly used to feel that a lot. I used to feel what well, there's actually a term for it, isn't there? We've got sleep debt. Mm. I mm. used to feel I was always in debt to my sleep. Um, and that's when I wasn't managing it well when I was drinking. But these days I feel that, you know, I'm caught up. Mm. And if I need to give in to a nap, I don't nap often because I can be quite grumpy, if I'm honest, when I wake up. <laughs> so if up. anyone knows you, oh, don't come around when you're going to have a yeah, nap. Because you just nap. keep a distance, keep a distance. One one last thing I just want to talk about, you talk about on social media, is the pursuit of joy. I'm fascinated to know what that means. Mm. I've kind of got a hint of it from what you've talked about, but what, what is the pursuit of joy? So it comes from a guy called Spinoza, 400 years ago, a philosopher, and he was writing in Latin. And so he had a word for power that meant power, as we mean it. And he had a second word for power, potentia, that has come to be translated down the years as a sort of joyful energy. And the point of that potential, that joy, is not that it's happiness like buying a new handbag mm. or going on holiday. It's the fact that you can channel just all that I mean, the world, if you let yourself believe the world was hopeless, you could believe it, couldn't you? And you channel all of that into doing joyful things like practicing joy. Joy is a value, activating it. So things like... Simple things like, I don't know, I came down on the train. A day early. A day early. But we'll forget that. <laughs> but do you know what? The train guard, what a nice lady. 
because I was not defensive and blustery, I was just like, oh, see what's happened here. It's me. And we just had a laugh. She never charged me. I got off at the next station. When I got on the train today, people remembered me. We had a lovely chat. I make that happen when sometimes what I want to do is just put my earphones Mm. in and read a book. So that sounds small, but we can build up those acts of joy. It's different to acts of kindness. Sometimes you are kind. It is about that. You're not giving people a gift. You just be, you just behaving joyously in the world. When the lockdown started, a friend rang me up. She worked in further education, and she rang me up and she said, "We have to do something. People's heads are going to be down. What can we do? You work with Joy. You, you know, you've done that TED talk. What can we do?" And so Joy FE was born, and that now is hundreds strong of educators who go into work every day, no matter how crap they are feeling and try and practice joy. What would this classroom look like if it was a practice of joy? What would this meeting look like if it was a practice of joy? And then, of course, we all energise one another Mm. because when somebody's having a bad day, somebody else isn't. I think it's the secret. It does strike me that if you can tackle everything in your life in a joyful way, that affects everyone around you. Presumably, it then has a benefit on your sleep. Yeah. Because your day is less stressful. You get better sleep. Everything seems less stressful. Your life is going to be more enjoyable and relaxing, isn't it? I think so. And if, as an ADHD person, what keep what kept me awake back in the day more than anything else was, why did I say that? Why did mm. I do that? I feel so bad. Why did I lose my temper? Why was I late? It was the self-shame and blame. Joy gets rid of that mm. because she can't be doing with that. You can't be joyful if you've got all that going on inside you. And it's like I said earlier, doing the work on yourself can really help to do the work in the world that we need to get done. Mm, yeah. Do you know, I could talk to you for hours and hours. One last thing then. So do you have any other tips? If you could choose one thing to tell the listeners around self-strategies, coping with ADHD, better sleep, what would you choose? What would your one thing be? When you first started speaking, I thought, what am I going to say? I've shot me bolt here. I've I've said everything (laughs) on my list. But actually, start saying no. Oh, interesting. Say it joyfully. Say it kindly. Don't say no because. Don't feel you need to give an excuse. No as a complete word. No, Mm. that's not for me. No, I won't do that, but I hope you have a great time. Yeah. And that takes control, doesn't it? Yeah. It takes control back. Well, that's wonderful. Dr. Lou Marcroft, it's been fabulous talking to you. You're an amazing person. Keep up the good work, Ronnie. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Absolutely likewise. I actually feel really happy after talking to Lou. Part of her strategies that she spoke about was listening to relaxing sounds. Here's an immersive soundscape for a moment of reflection to help you sleep on it. To learn more, go to thesleepcharity.org.uk. Thank you.